Welcome to the Heal and Grow Journey podcast. I'm Jennifer, your host, a mental health and wellness advocate, and a trauma survivor. This platform will be used to break the silence and create awareness around mental health in the Black community and in general for all people. My hope is that you will feel seen, heard, supported, and valued as we progress through the journey of healing and growing. Welcome back to the Heal and Grow Journey podcast. Thank you for listening. Hope all is well with everyone. Today, I want to talk about the interview that took place with Meghan Markle, Prince Harry, and Oprah. This interview just, you know, took place recently. Um, It was on CBS. If you haven't seen it, as of right now, anyways, you can stream it on the CBS You can go to their website and stream it. So I just want to put that out there. So you, if you have a desire to go watch it after you hear this episode, which I'm sure you will, you'll know where to go find it. So I watched the interview the first, the first night that it aired and man, just watching it, I got triggered, you know, at times only because I could relate to some of their experiences some of Megan's experiences individually, and then some of their experiences collectively as a married couple. And then also another layer would be some of her yeah, experiences due to race and things like that. So it was just it's a lot of moving parts to this story. So again, you know, at times it was triggering and but, you know, I, I watched all of it and I was like, wow, you know, I, I commend them for coming forward and sharing their story. And speaking your truth, that in itself is therapeutic. It's it's you, it's freeing. Sometimes you feel like there's weights lifted off your shoulders. So, um, and you know that requires vulnerability, and there's strength in vulnerability. So, I definitely commend them for you know sharing their story. So, when I was watching this interview, the thing that was jumping out at me was that to me, and this is my perspective. So, what I'm going to do on this episode is just kind of you know give you guys my perspective. What was jumping out at me was covert narcissistic emotional and psychological abuse at the root that's like the first main layer and then another layer is obviously like race racial issues but at the root what i observed was covert narcissistic you know psychological and emotional abuse now i always had intentions of covering these topics on this podcast. It's just so complex that I hadn't tackled it yet because I wanted to make sure that I do it the right way. And so after watching this interview, I'm like, you know, this is a good segue for me to just start talking about this stuff. So before I start kind of dissecting the content of the interview and what was shared, I want to lay down the foundation of covert narcissism and the narcissistic family structure and what that actually is, because I'm going to make a correlation between the narcissistic family and the royal family. What is covert narcissism? So covert behaviors are those that are subtle and a bit less obvious to others. 
covert narcissists crave admiration and importance as well as lacks empathy towards others. So that's a brief description of what covert behaviors are. But if you don't even know what a narcissist is, it's, um, you know, it's an individual that is very self-absorbed. They have a, a grandiose sense of self. You know, usually they just really think that they're superior to others. You have two versions of that type of individual. You have an overt version, which is someone that's just bold and loud and, you know, just outright obnoxious with it. And then you have those that are covert with it because, you know, they're very concerned about their image, but they always want to be viewed in a positive light. They don't ever want to be perceived as a negative person that's causing harm to others. So they do harm, but they just do it. They're really sneaky with it, basically, is what I'm saying. So <laughs> that's um, a little bit about what the covert narcissist is. So when it comes to the narcissistic family, it's a certain structure. Typically in that family, you'll have like the matriarch or the patriarch and the matriarch or the patriarch typically, not always, but typically that might be like maybe like the first generation narcissist. Then you have like the spouse, you'll have a golden child, a scapegoat child, a lost child, and they have another term that's called like a mascot. Basically, like the needs of the narcissist comes first and foremost. The needs of the children or the spouse must never limit or threaten the image or reputation of the family. And this basically results in the creation of a hierarchy of like suppressing the needs of all the members to ensure that there is a dysfunctional balance which satisfies the nar the narcissist. So basically they thrive off of keeping their family dysfunctional basically because it benefits them. And so we'll we'll get into that a little bit more. So the family image is the most important. So each role in the family will depend on the grandiose image the narcissist is trying to maintain and what that family member can offer them. So everybody has their role and it's it's strategic because each role is benefiting the narcissist. So the roles, some of the roles are, like I said, the enabler, which is usually the spouse or one of the daughters for some reason. And this is not always across the board, but for the most part, this is what you'll find if you do your research. The enabler is usually a spouse or one of the daughters. The golden child is someone that they can mold in their image, right? And they're usually the oldest for some reason. Not always, but usually. Then this is a new one that I just recently learned. It's called the surrogate parent. So when there are like multiple children in the family, like the narcissist will designate one of the children to be like the surrogate parent to kind of take on that parent role and keep everybody in line. Basically be the I spy and to just make sure that everything's in line when the narcissist is not around. And then you have the scapegoat, which is the person that they dump their frustration on and their disowned rage. And this is usually like the most outspoken child 
in the family, whoever has the most individuality, the one that that's not afraid to use their voice typically becomes the scapegoat. Then you have the lost child, which is someone that's neglected and encouraged to just not rock the boat. Like they don't really have a role. And so they're neglected a lot. And they're just, they're just there. They just kind of go with the flow. Then the mascot, which I've learned that they're usually the youngest. And this is the person that's the joker of the family, providing comedy relief that will mask the dysfunction. So that person that will always crack jokes to just try to, you know, help ease the tension and pretend like the dysfunction doesn't really exist. So let's just make a joke about it and be sarcastic. So those are some of the roles, consequences of a narcissistic family, anxiety and depression, emotional suppression, low self-esteem, wrong beliefs about relationships. Um, So basically constant competition and thinking that like love is a limited resource. So they have to like fight and compete for the love and affection of whether it's their parent or if it's someone they're in a relationship with, et cetera. Um, Then also lack of trust. Typically, they'll have like a lot of roadblocks to intimacy. They may struggle with being intimate with others and being vulnerable because at the root, just growing up in that family dynamic, you know, if the let's say like the narcissist was a parent, it's like an emotional roller coaster, I guess. And so you get to the point where you just numb out and you just don't even trust nobody. So those are some of the consequences. So now back to the royal family, they have a lot of structures. So I didn't like go, I'm not going over everything, but just to give you a high level snippet of the royal family structure. So you'll have like the sovereign, the queen, the princess or the duchess, uh, sons and daughters and, you know, grandsons and granddaughters and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So just to kind of give you an example of that hierarchy. So the narcissistic family, a lot of times when you do your research, you'll find that they will basically describe them as being very similar to a cult, like a brainwashing type of cult, because they'll say that if you study cults, which I have not personally studied cults, but I did watch some documentaries, the cult is usually led by a narcissist or psychopath and if you're a member of a cult you'll probably feel trapped and tangled and enmeshed in that environment and so what they'll do in the cult setting like they'll break you down then they'll reset you and try to like build you back up basically like like a robot you know just kind of reprogram you and brainwash you um, so the cult does harm to its members. They prey upon your vulnerability. They uh, encourage you to be open and share with everyone. And then they'll use whatever you've shared against you. They create a level of codependency and they discourage individuation and boundaries. So those are the things that are discouraged and what a cult would look like. Now, if you compare and contrast that to the narcissistic family, In the narcissistic family, uh, they will protect the image of the family over the well-being of any of its members. First and foremost, that is priority. The image of the family is always priority. They don't care about pain and suffering or any abuse you've endured by members of the family. If you dare to speak your truth and speak up about what you don't like or about any abuse you've endured you will be scapegoated immediately and probably forever 
And so the, some of the things that you may experience is they may gaslight you after you've shared, you know, your truth and then turn around and maybe praise the abuser. A lot of times the in the narcissistic family, they subscribe to groupthink. It's like this warped reality and you're expected to conform. So you're not allowed to challenge this reality ever. Boundaries are not accepted and having your own identity is punished even as as an adult. So obviously, yeah, if you're a minor, for sure. But even when you become an adult, it's still the same expectation. So no boundaries, no privacy. And they depend on one of their tactics is the divide and conquer. So they're always pitting people against each other. And that's kind of where like the golden child and the scapegoat child kind of comes in. So it's like there's it's always like one upping each other, creating competition, just creating tension and animosity and just pitting people against one another. That's some of the things related to the narcissistic family within the narcissistic family. And just if you're dating a narc or if you're narc as a boss, like, you know, mind you, there's many different settings where you can encounter a narcissist. But there is a particular abuse cycle that they all seem to subscribe to for some reason. I don't know what that's about. But one of the tactics of the abuse cycle is idolize or love bombing. So they groom the victim. They cultivate a sense of trust and commitment with the victim. And so they'll engage the victim's empathy to accelerate bonding, loyalty and attachment. So when they first meet you, you know, they'll love bomb you, you know, they'll be super nice and they'll make you feel very welcomed and special and chosen. And it's just warm and fuzzy. It's just like a really good feeling. And you're going to think, oh, my God, they're so nice. And, you know, this is like the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Right. So that's like the first phase of the abuse cycle. And it's all strategic. So they, they're they're grooming you um, so that you can let your guard down, basically. So then the next phase is called devalue. So then they'll start, they'll go from, oh, this love bombing and idealizing you to now devaluing you, which will look like starting to criticize you and break you down and just like break your spirit. You know what I mean? Um, and then when you react to this devaluation process, um, then they'll turn around and play the victim. So although that they're being psychologically and emotionally abusive towards you, once you have a reaction or if you call it out or if you speak up about it or try to insert a boundary or something like that, then they'll become the victim. And then they'll try to triangulate or smear campaign and gaslight you even further to gain to regain control. Or they may just punish you or, and, you know, maybe isolate you, ostracize you, you know, things like that. So that's the second phase. Then the third phase is called uh, discard. So um, at this point, they're done with you. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but, you know, they just can't even be bothered. Like, it's like you're you're too difficult at this point. You're not you're not allowing them to just abuse you and you not and just remain silent, you know, and they don't have time for that. So at this point, they act very defensive against the victim's pain. They project their shame and insecurity on the victim and then they throw you away. Um, and at this point, the victim is super confused. You don't know what's going on. You're like, well, one minute you were mad cool and everything was good. And the next minute, you know, you just started like, breaking me down and breaking my spirit so 
you start to think that it's you. You start to think, well, maybe I did something to cause them to treat me this way. And you just start um, maybe even trying to reconcile. And then you're apologizing. You don't even know what you're really apologizing for. And then you're just taking ownership of you know, all of this, even though it's really not your fault, then you become distressed and just stressed out. And it's just a downward spiral. <laughs> that is, you know, the abuse cycle. So within that abuse cycle, I use certain terms. So gaslighting, if you're not aware, that's when they manipulate someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. Then triangulation is when the narcissist attempts to control the narrative and ensure communications flow through them and constantly relate back to them. Um, And then the last one is the smear campaign, which is an, an intense campaign designed to humiliate the victim while simultaneously elevating the narcissist. So that's a little background of the covert narcissistic emotional psychological abuse and the narcissistic family. So how does this correlate to the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry story that they shared with the royal family? So here we go. Okay, so they stated, well, Meghan, well, this was public information. So it was stated that In January of 2020, they decided to step back as senior working members of the royal family. So Meghan and Harry, it it was a public announcement at this point that they decided to step back, not leave, but just take a step back, right, from being working members of the, the royal family. So let me backtrack. So Meghan stated that she went into the marriage naively because she didn't know much about the royals and she didn't do her research. And that sounds kind of absurd. I know to a lot of us it's like, how, how did you not know who they are? <laughs> you know, but hey, that's it is what it is. That's what she says. I'm gonna take it for face value. She also said that she thought her husband, Harry, would tell her everything she needed to know. So she was kind of like, yeah, leaning on him. Like if there was something that she didn't know that he would bring it to her attention. And they had that trust with between one another. And I guess, you know, through their courting, you know, she trusted him and she, you know, depends on him. And so she didn't, she didn't question it. Okay. So one of the things that she was saying is that the perception and the reality are two different things. So you're being judged on the perception, but you're you're living the reality. So when you see the pictures of them online smiling and, you know, and they're all dressed up and they're at all these special events or they're on tour somewhere, you know, it, it looks like it's picture perfect on the outside. So that's what she was saying was the perception, but that wasn't her actual reality. She was saying that there was one of the events that, um, she went to that they went to together as husband and wife and people after that event would reach out and be like, oh, my God, you guys look great. Y'all look so you look so beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. And she was saying that, you know, just hours before that event, you know, she was talking about killing herself and saying that she didn't want to be alive anymore. So, again, to her point, you know, people are looking at that the perception of what it looks like on the outside, but you don't understand the reality. So for her, she said there was a turning point for her. The turning point for her, um, for Megan, she said, was when that headline about her making her making Kate Middleton, her sister-in-law, cry was like a, a breaking point for her, she said, because in actuality, it was the reverse. She said that her sister-in-law made her cry, but the narrative that was 
being put out there in the tabloids and everything like that is that, you know, she was the villain. And so here is one of the first things that jumped out at me about the narcissistic family structure. So it seems, and this is my perspective and my analysis, Kate, the sister-in-law in this scenario would fit the role of the golden child. And then Megan, the other sister-in-law, she would fit the role of the scapegoat child. Okay. So if you remember the golden child is the one that they can shape into their image and, you know, so they're more aligned and they conform and, you know, like they just, it's all about the image and then they conform. And then the scapegoat is the one that has individuality that um, is outspoken and knows who they are. And, you know, they may challenge your opinions or, you know, they may, yeah, just have their own perspectives on things because they're a person. So, yeah, and that's not allowed. <laughs> so you become the scapegoat. Then the next thing is she was saying that everyone knew that it was the other way around. But the family or the firm, they would not negate that narrative. So basically, she was saying that in other scenarios, if there's something in the tabloids about someone within the family, and it could be the most minor thing, like if it's not true, or if it's going to make that person look bad, because you know, it's all about image, you know, they would go on record and negate it and say no, for the record, that did not happen. That's not true, et cetera, et cetera. So every time there was these false narratives circulating about Megan, nobody ever went on the record to try to protect her reputation and say like, no, that didn't happen. This is what happened or just try to provide some type of clarity. It just never happened for her. So she was saying that that was one of the things that she regrets is that she went into the marriage, into the family thinking that they would protect her from stuff like that, just like they did everyone else. And then, you know, sooner than later, she began to realize that, okay, that's not the case for her. And so there were stories of like Kate being praised, the sister-in-law being praised for certain things. But then when it came to Megan, you know, she was not. It, it was a different narrative for her. So it was like, OK. So I think one of the scenarios was when Kate was walking around with her baby bump and holding her baby bump and, t you know, taking pictures. And everybody was saying, oh, it's so cute, et cetera, et cetera. But then when Megan was walking around holding her baby bump, they basically defined her as being prideful and being vain. This is a double standard. So again, there was a separate standard for Megan. So they, they just wanted her to be the villain. It was like the hero and the villain. So golden child, scapegoat child. So that's one correlation. So yeah, so she just talked about being lonely, um, wanting to go out and have maybe lunch with her girlfriends because she had been in the house for like four months. Then they would basically like gaslight her and, and try to make her question, you know, reality. And they would say, like, oh, well, you know, you're everywhere right now. So you really should just lay low, et cetera, et cetera. But she's like, I mean, I haven't been out in four months. So, you know, <laughs> how much lower do I need to, you know, how, how much more do I have to take? Like lay low even more like I haven't been out in four months. But then they would try to just warp her reality and, and, and make her question herself. So that's definitely a form of gaslighting. So yeah, her character was being assassinated while simultaneously, you know, they're protecting everybody else's reputation. So that can be considered that whole smear campaign thing that I talked about regarding the abuse cycle. So now let's just jump to when she starts talking about her mental health. 
So she said the she was the target of attacks, which were, and she felt like it was unsurvivable. So she didn't see any other solution but to just to kill herself. And because she felt like all this was happening just because, you know, like she was breathing and she was ashamed to admit that she didn't want to be alive anymore. So she was ashamed to share with her husband that, you know, that she was having suicidal thoughts. But eventually she did. And he even stated that at that point, he didn't know what to do. He didn't talk to his family about it because he he said that he also felt ashamed with the fact that his wife needed help. For some reason, that made him feel ashamed. And then he felt helpless because he didn't know what to do. So this is a good example of like, you know, just the stigma associated with mental health. You know, if it was like, oh, your wife broke her arm or she fell down, you know, she twisted her ankle. Like nobody's going to be ashamed of like, oh, I got to take my, my wife to the ER. <laughs> you know what I mean? But anything related to mental health, there's just all this stigma around it. So it's just, you know, it's unfortunate. And this is one of the main reasons why I continue to advocate and to just to talk about this stuff, just to try to end that stigma and um, to break those cycles and um, and break the silence. Like it's it's OK to have these conversations. So luckily they did. And it just like she was saying, it takes courage to admit you need help and that, you know, that you're in a dark place. So definitely don't suffer in silence. You know, I'm like, who cares what other people think? You know, they probably was going through the same thing. They just not talking about it. You know what I mean? Like it. There are tons, unfortunately, tons of people going through the same things, but nobody has the courage to talk about it. And if everybody, you know, would normalize just having these conversations, it would just really save a lot of lives and it would really help a lot of people. And so at this point in the interview, Harry was brought in. So he started to share his perspective on things. And he said that he left because he was desperate said he left the royal family because he was desperate and he asked for help and he couldn't get it so at this point they were asking the firm if she could go somewhere to get help for mental health whether go get checked into some type of hospital or you know maybe you know talking to a therapist like anything she was denied any type of assistance I can't even imagine like as a man as a husband you know your role is to protect your wife and take care of your family and all that and your wife is telling you she's suicidal and you can't even get her to a hospital or even get her to talk to a therapist or anything and you have that hanging over your head so it's like yeah what else do you do so he had to do what was in the best interest of his wife and his son and his immediate family but it was unfortunate that he had to be pushed to that extreme but again if you remember what I was saying when I was talking about the whole family image how that is when it comes to the narcissistic family the family image is most important first and foremost they don't care about anybody's pain and suffering and struggles like you're expected to suppress your emotions you're expected to suppress everything because of the the family image so if that means whatever you know you just deal with it basically so he was forced to leave and he, that's what he said one of the things that also jumped out at me is that when it came to the abuse cycle these are my words abuse cycle they mentioned that in the beginning she was well welcomed and everything was going great and everything changed when the family saw how incredible she was at her job and that she was pregnant. I think to me, this is an example of you just not really you can't stand out too much. You're supposed to conform and you can't have too much 
I guess the term is individuation. You can't be too much of your own person. Like they just don't like that. That just really gets under their skin. And so she, yeah, she was assimilating into the family. But the fact that people, were, you know, when she would go out on these tours and things, um, people in the different, I guess, organizations and the charities just gravitating to her. They didn't like it. And then now comes the whole she's pregnant thing. This is where the a whole another layer begins when it comes to the race thing. What I thought was interesting, and this is also, in my opinion, like another aspect of the whole covert thing. They obviously knew she was biracial <laughs> before they got married, when they were dating, obviously after they got married. They knew that they weren't accepting of the whole biracial thing. So why not just be straight up and just tell Harry like, hey, we don't want no biracial person in our family, period. We don't want it because that's how you feel. You know what I mean? But again, they want to protect their image. So they would never come out and I guess t- just tell him that um, they're going to pretend like it's OK. So they're dating or even when she first they first got married, they're just love bombing her and welcoming her and, and, and making him and her think that, yeah, they're they're welcoming her into the family, but they never had any intentions of really embracing her into that family. So this is the covert part. So now it's like, OK, we're not going to tell you straightforward that we don't like her. We don't accept her. We will never accept her. We're going to just covertly, emotionally and psychologically abuse her the whole time that she's around. And then hopefully she'll just leave. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like versus them just telling you. So that's why he said that because I think Oprah asked him, like, did you you know, like, what did you think? You know, your family was going to do or how did you think they were going to feel by you bringing her around? And he was just like he wasn't aware, like no one ever said anything to him. Like he didn't even know that it was a thing until, you know, he started to the, the tabloids and things. But he's been in a bubble. So he didn't know. And I actually believe him as as absurd as that sounds. I can see why he may not have thought that they were really going to have an issue with it. But again, maybe even before, maybe he they could have said, OK, maybe they thought they were just dating. And so let's let Harry have his fun with this biracial girl. And then, you know, it is what it is. But the minute he said, OK, we're going to get married. I feel like they should have just told him straight up, like, OK, you can marry her if you want to. But this is <laughs> this is how it is. And we're not going to be accepting of it, you know, and at least he would have known what he was getting himself into. And then she as well, like at least they would know what they're dealing with. And then they can govern themselves accordingly and make, you know what I mean, like an educated decision on what they want to do. But when you manipulate people and pretend like it's one way when in reality it's not. So now you're going to wait until she's pregnant and now you're going to pull Harry aside and have these sidebar conversations about how you're concerned about how dark the baby's skin is going to be and the baby's not going to have security and the baby's not going to have a title and the baby's not going to have this, this and that, which is totally, you know, out of pattern for the tradition. So it's like, wh- why? Why not just tell him up front? But again, that's what the coverts do. If they were an overt narcissist, <laughs> they would have just been like hell to the naw immediately. But the coverts, that's why they're more dangerous. Gotta be careful with the coverts. So long story short, Harry said that if they had the support 
from the family that him and Kate would not have left. They would have still been there, but they were desperate and they felt like they didn't have a choice. So they left to protect their peace, to protect their mental health and for their physical safety as well. And so back to the whole group think mentality like you know they subscribe the narcissistic family members they subscribe to group think and you have to conform so you know because of all of this now i think harry was saying that his father had stopped taking his calls i think him and his brother are estranged they cut him off financially they took away his security you know and so basically he's been ostracized and they're not they're not messing with him Okay, that's basically how it sounded based on what he was saying. Why is his brother not talking to him? Why is his dad not talking to him? Like whoever else. I mean, there's probably like tons of other family members that are just not going to talk to him anymore. And it's unfortunate, but that's that whole group think mentality. Like they all, it's like a domino effect. Like you have a, a disagreement with one, then just have a disagreement with everybody because they all subscribe to group think. And that's part of that narcissistic family dynamic. That was a lot, I know. And some of you listeners may be aware of some of this stuff. And for some of you, this might be like brand new information. And I just, I encourage you to do your own research and, you know, look some of this stuff up. Now, at some point, I'm going to do like a series on the different forms of narcissists, different settings that, you know, you can encounter them. And why? Why would I take the time to do all of that? Is because this stuff can be extremely damaging to your mental health. You know, in this example, you know, Megan came out and said that she was suicidal. But there are a lot of stories that we're just not aware of. But if you go and look at stats and things, people commit suicide. People... Especially like if you have been abused since, you know, childhood, then it just opens you up to other forms of abuse and these unhealthy coping mechanisms. Like this is serious stuff. This is nothing to take with, you know, take lightly like it's just no big deal. It's it's very serious and it's worth educating yourself on it so that you can be aware And also, if somebody would ever come to you and say, hey, I'm experiencing emotional and psychological abuse, you know, if you're even somewhat aware of what they're talking about, the likelihood of you invalidating their experience, you know, it it's lower. You know what I mean? And so you can maybe provide some type of support and believe them um, because a lot of people are just frustrated because the victims become the villain. They make the victim the villain and you get isolated, ostracized. You know, you have your reputation is just trashed and it's just a lot. So the more that awareness can be created, the better. I, it's to the point where it could actually save somebody's life. So I hope you found this episode helpful. Really, really hope you find it helpful and that you've learned something new, or at least it will pique your interest to go and do your own research and to just learn some more information on the subject. Okay, until next time. If you need to contact me, I can be reached via email at healinggrowjourneypodcast at gmail.com. If you have not done so already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy listening to Heal and Grow Journey. I would greatly appreciate the support. In addition, 
please follow the Heal and Grow Journey Instagram page at Heal and Grow Journey. Please like and follow the Heal and Grow Journey podcast Facebook page and the Heal and Grow Journey podcast Twitter page. Until next time, take care.